0: On this week's 51%,
1: I wanted to go back and look at the history to see what we've already tried, what the history of dealing with a lot of these institutions was like to give young people something to go back to and look at.
0: We sit down with Dr. Alice Green, founder and director of Albany's Center for Law and Justice, to discuss her new book, We Who Believe in Freedom. Coming up on 51%.
2: I was standing around like one of those girls I have seen in a movie The whole world was a movie back then I had my sunglasses on I wanted to be seen without seeing Shiloh Alita I wasn't really in
0: it I didn't really get it You're listening to 51%, a WAMC production dedicated to women's issues and stories. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jesse King. Our guest today is a longtime civil rights activist and icon in Albany, New York. Dr. Alice Green is the founder and executive director of the Center for Law and Justice, a nonprofit organization that has called for criminal justice reform, including an end to mass incarceration and systemic oppression since 1985. Green herself has received several awards recognizing her activism in Albany from organizations like the NAACP, National Organization for Women, New York State Bar Association, and more. She earned her doctorate in criminal justice from SUNY's University at Albany, as well as three master's degrees in education, social work, and criminology. And late last year, she sought out a local black press to publish her latest project, a part memoir, part history of the city, titled We Who Believe in Freedom, Activism and the Struggle for Social Justice. In it, Green examines her childhood in New York's North Country, her activism in Albany and the history of the city's black communities from the early days of enslavement to the civil rights movement and to the Black Lives Matter movement that continues in the city today. Like cities across the U.S., Albany erupted in protest throughout the spring and summer of 2020 following the death of George Floyd at the hands of Minneapolis police. And like cities across the state that year, Albany also looked inward following an executive order by then-Governor Andrew Cuomo requiring municipalities to study how they might reimagine policing. I recently got the chance to sit down with Green and ask about all of these things and more, at least as much as we could touch on in a half-hour show. And we now bring you that full interview today.
1: I'm from the Adirondacks. Actually, I was actually born in South Carolina, but my family moved when I was very young to the Adirondacks. It's an iron ore mining town. The uh, mining industry needed more people to work in this very, very, very dangerous mining business because the immigration population had been cut due to the First World War. So they went south and recruited a number of African-Americans. but And they were located in a, a town south of where I lived. So I grew up in a, upstate New York in a very white, very Catholic community, which was not easy if you're a African-American <laughs> and you're not Catholic. I got the opportunity to enter SUNY, which was something of great pride to my family. My dad was illiterate coming from the South. My mom had some education, so she placed a lot of emphasis on education. So I was able to do that. I came to Albany to become an educator.
0: <laughs> um, now you've had a long role in activism in Albany. In the time that you've been here, like, what does that activism in history look like and how has it changed today?
1: Well, there have been some changes, yes. I can't say that there haven't. There's a long way to go. Albany was a very uh, controlled city by a democratic machine. Politics actually was the name of the game in Albany, and it had been for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, The mayor, you know, uh, Rastus Corning was mayor for 42 years, and it was really very controlling. The party decided who could get good housing, (laughs) uh, decided who would be employed, uh, decided how people would vote, and so the black population, which came from the South and was continued the great migration black migration north, they settled in Albany and particularly in the south end, and they the ones that had to live in the the worst housing uh did not have the services that were needed like there was no garbage pickup. <laughs> A lot of people don't believe that that we were in that situation uh there were not um you know, uh, recreational type resources, very segregated, Albany is a very segregated city. It still is to some extent, uh, to a great extent, I, you know, I'm, I have to admit that. When we look at our education system, who's in public schools, where housing is, and, uh, affordable housing, all of that, it's still very much segregated. But I think one of the biggest things that's happened is that the population, the African American population, due to the war on poverty and uh, the community organizing that took place, uh, have become much more involved in trying to have some control over their lives. So we now see uh, black legislators. There was a recognition that the police department was totally given the responsibility of controlling the population. And so we saw a lot of uh, police brutality. At one point, when we moved into the 70s, increase in incarceration due to the war on drugs. So we've been organized to a great extent to try to deal with those problems because during that period in late 60s, neighborhood organizations grew up and they, you know, had more to say about what their community was going to look like. And some of the population was able to move into different areas, um, moving on up to Arbor Hill, and even a number of people moving out into the suburbs. So there have been changes in terms of, to some extent, where people live, but we still have the problems of poor housing for most people. Poverty is still a big force in our community. The criminal justice system is still, unfortunately, affecting, in a very negative kind of way, the population. Much more police surveillance of the community. Uh, arrests are much higher among uh, people of color those problems still exist but the community I think has risen to a point of trying to be involved in making the kinds of changes and I believe in people power we've always worked and organized the community to try to deal with a lot of these issues
0: I know um you know, when I, I've been doing a lot of inter, uh, interviews for this show and a lot of things that people have been mentioning in the past, you know, like year or so is that we're in the midst of like a new racial reckoning and that this is like a new social justice movement and stuff. And how new really is it, <laughs> one, but also um, do you see the momentum continuing? Are we making improvements?
1: Yeah, we were very excited last year after experiencing the death of George Floyd that things were going to change during that year we certainly saw more people getting involved in demonstrating and protesting regarding that issue of social justice and we're talking about blacks and whites and other uh, ethnic groups getting involved in it so it was it was quite exciting and very hopeful unfortunately that didn't last there's still very many people involved and i think many people were affected by you know, being involved in that kind of a movement. So we have more people than we had prior to it who were involved still with social justice. But overall, it has quieted down, you know, and we thought this was uh, indeed a new reckoning for uh, racism and and dealing with structural racism in particular. So we wanted to change things with the police department. The governor had issued an executive order, 203, saying that all the police departments needed to re-examine how they do policing and address those issues of racism. And the community rose up and was very much involved. However, it didn't quite pan out the way we had hoped. I don't think the state was really that serious about making sure we had transformative change. There was a threat to the jurisdictions across the state that you would lose funding if you didn't do certain things related to change. And the community, I think, was sold a a really bad bill of goods here because I don't think any intent to look at the kinds of changes that were being proposed. There was no threat of losing money. I don't think anybody lost any money. And so we didn't really get the change that we had hoped for. You know, and this is one of the things that, as I was thinking about writing this book, I wanted to go back and look at the history to give young people something to go back to and look at, to see what we already tried, what the history of dealing with a lot of these institutions was like, trying to give them some sense of what they needed to know as they were certainly planning out how they were going to make the kinds of changes that we've been working for since 1619, (laughs) and the Black Lives Matter movement was a major part of that.
0: You mentioned the the governor's, you know, mandate for having reimagining policing right. across different communities. Policing. Yeah. You know, there's this something that I've read online of sentiments that we always think of the first step as like, Well let's study this and then it doesn't go beyond studying what's happening in a right. community and it just seems like well then every time we revisit it, like, well let's study it. Like it's just there's constant studies and a little less action. Would you agree with that? Is that something that yeah. well, you've noticed?
1: I'll, when uh Politicians are short on answers. (laughs) Uh, The best thing to do is is to say we'll study it or I'll form a committee. Our position has always been, hey, we know what the problems are. I mean, I know why we have poverty. I know why we have uh, disproportionate incarceration of black people. It's been a part of this country since the very beginning. You know, I don't need to study that anymore. I mean, it's, it's important to have a history of, of what was done, but uh, I think people now are speaking more about the impact uh, of poverty on their lives, of speaking more about the impact of incarceration on their lives. We've given, you know, uh, politicians and other people in power enough information to know that structural racism is a major problem in this country and that it affects the way uh, not only people behave, but how they treat other people. People who are most directly impacted by all of those horrible conditions, they can tell you very well uh, what the problem is. But the pro- but from what I see is we have not uh, listened to that. It's not become a priority. To make the kinds of changes that need to be made is going to affect other people in power. I mean, if you want to get... Re- I don't think everybody wants to get rid of poverty. I mean, we might, you know, we might say it's the thing that we need to do, but uh, there are a lot of people who are very satisfied with the status quo. They're part of the system. They're making money. You know, they got the good houses, the good education systems, and all of that. Why do they want to change that? But those, that's where the problems are. Mm-hmm. So we can't just keep going around saying, "Oh, we got to find out what the problem is." and then have these band-aid solutions, which really infuriates me, issues like uh, not only poverty, but violence, and well, uh, all we gotta do is put more police on the street, and then it'll it'll solve that particular problem, or we gotta have a gun buyback program, and that will deal with the problem of violence and guns on the street. More white people have guns than black people. (laughs) You have to understand why, All these problems linger in poor communities. It's not an issue of people being black, you know. It's more of an issue of people being in poverty. Uh, Racism creates poverty, but uh, blacks are not any more, you know, criminal or violent uh, than any other people. But I think poor people have live under different conditions that sort of define what they can and cannot do.
0: What do you see as maybe like the biggest tool towards real change?
1: Well, that, that of course is the difficult part. <laughs> You've gotta, uh, the things that we would propose, you're not gonna get very much support on. We believe that public safety is, is not promoted by putting people in, cars, in prisons. It's already been shown that prisons are ineffective in dealing with uh, criminal behavior. You know, I'm not any safer by putting people in prison. It's a tall order. As I said, we've been working to change this system since 1619, but we have to guarantee people a minimum income. You know, people need resources to survive and to thrive in this country. So there has to be, make that commitment to making sure that everyone is able to benefit from this society. So there's an economic problem here. You know, structural racism is here, it's been here, and even though some people are starting to understand it and recognize it, we have not made it a top priority to deal with that within our institutions. We're still willing to work and operate on stereotypes of people and to treat them according to those stereotypes and to define the problem in, I think, in ways that don't make a whole lot of sense. You know, As I said... You know, when violence comes up, the first thing that people ask me is that, how can we deal with this violence in the black community? And I said, you know, wait a minute, that's not a black issue. It might be a poverty issue, and it might be a racism issue, but it has nothing to do with the color of my skin. You know, I'm not inherently criminal. None of the people that I know of are inherently criminal. (laughs) So we've got to really, as a society, make a commitment that this is going to be our top priority. If we're really concerned about public safety, if we're really concerned about poverty and all of those issues, they should be uppermost on our list of things to address.
0: What do you see as the role of allies in this push in this fight for social justice? Oh like-
1: very very important. as I said I believe in people power. Uh, that was one of the things that helped make the kind of the changes that I, that I mentioned earlier in in this particular community way before the George Floyd thing, we noticed that a number of people who were not familiar with the South End and, and Arbor Hill where most of the, uh, you know, the population of color lived, they didn't know anything about the South End. You know, they started becoming much more involved in it, and I think we were able to make the few changes that we made because of the influence from uh, different organizations that were, Uptown and white, <laughs> and uh, they came down and they helped establish some housing, affordable housing for uh, people in the community. Um, we had uh, journalists who pointed out the problems of horrible housing that people were were forced to live in. A lot of the there was the interfaith community uh, got involved, and that's when you started to see some changes. Same thing with 2020 after George Floyd, you find. Uh, allies who were willing to get involved in the struggle, and as I mentioned, a number of them still are, and that's good. With people power, you need people, <laughs> and you need, you need good allies to work with you to do that. That's one of the things that I mentioned when, in writing the book, that how important it is to have those allies, because we can't do it by ourselves, even though I think the changes that need to be made regarding uh, African Americans and the, the impact of the system on them is that there has to be leadership from uh, the most affected uh, and impacted communities.
0: In that regard, like what does a good ally look like?
1: A good ally is not afraid to speak truth to power. You can't be silent and be a good ally. <laughs> if you see injustice, you have to say that you see injustice and you really want to do something about it. So we have a lot of people who say, "Oh, I, I." I appreciate what you do, that's wonderful, keep on doing it, but they're not willing to make any sacrifices, uh, they're not willing to speak up to those in power, but those who are, who are willing to do that are, are the good allies. <laughs> they, they are saying that, hey, this is my community, this is my country, I know that certain things are not right, You know, we see now displays of vigilantism. We see uh, open expressions of white supremacy. You know, we're seeing all those things now, Uh, voter suppression and all of that. You know, if you believe in a democracy and you believe in in, uh, uh, equality, how you can be silent about something like that is beyond me. And it's not just about the freedom of black people or brown people. I think white people need to be free, too, (laughs) because, you you know, it takes to me, it takes a lot of stress and fear to deny people housing or whatever it happens to be. I mean, you you know, you got to spend a lot of time trying to figure out how to keep people at a distance. To me, that would be horrible. (laughs) So.
0: So you mentioned that, you know, you grew up in the North Country, and then you came down to Albany. What was that transition like from going from a small town to a larger city?
1: Yeah, it was a very important one for me because, as I mentioned, I didn't know any people of color Mm -hmm. growing up in a small, rural, conservative community. I didn't know who I was because there was no way for me to. My family uh, didn't—parents didn't talk about the South because they had terrible experiences in the South— And so I'm growing up without uh, any benefit of African American history and education, so I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, Moving from that kind of a, a setting in a rural white community and coming to Albany, where there were more people of color, and particularly African Americans, and opportunities to learn more about my history as an African American, was exciting, you know. I started learning how how to read things that I'd never run across. Jane Baldwin and and a whole bunch of other writers. You know, it was so refreshing and uh, helped me grow and, and understand not only who I was, but what my mission in life needed to be. So it was great coming into a community where there were other people of color
0: you know, through your career of activism, like, how has it been advancing to where you are now as a woman, having to go through these things?
1: Yeah, it's, that, that's interesting because, um, I mean, I can identify with, with other women, but I think it's important to know that African American women have a totally different experience. We don't look at this big picture of women. <laughs> uh, we know that white women are able to advance in ways that we can't. I also am very sensitive to being a woman and wanting to do things that we're prevented from doing in this society simply because I am a woman, but I'm prevented even further because I'm a black woman. I try to identify with women, and, and uh, a lot of my allies are white women, but uh, when I look back and see how this society treats white women differently, and they have, you know, They've been put on a pedestal, and black women weren't. <laughs> uh, some of the things that white women won't do, black women were very happy to do. You know, like when the fem- when the uh, uh, movement was started, uh, white women were insulted to be offered a secretarial position, for instance. <laughs> black women have always wanted to be, you know, in those positions that uh, white women did not want to. And so there was some, you know, during the feminist movement, we had some discussions about these issues and that I think, uh, you know, we worked out. Uh, So I identify with being a woman and I know all of the uh, ways that women are oppressed in this country. It's a twofold thing. You you know, you're oppressed because you're a woman and you're oppressed because you are black. We have to deal with with all of those issues, (laughs) which uh, maybe white women don't have to.
0: Um, And just lastly, like, you know, your book focuses on your experiences and the situation in Albany. But are there certain aspects to Albany that you feel are maybe unique to other areas? Or do you think Albany is a pretty good example for what's happening across the U.S.?
1: Well, I think both. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Albany has always been uh, politically controlled by one party. That means that uh, a lot of things don't happen. <laughs> you don't get fresh ideas. You don't get politicians who can uh, really compete with each other. And I think we're, we're missing getting all of the uh, good people involved in that whole political process that we would if uh, we were a more open uh, community. I would love to see, you know, a campaign where you had three <laughs> three good candidates and they we're interested in everybody's issues rather than having it being a foregone conclusion that certain people in certain parties are going to win. You know, we don't benefit from that. That's the difference. But I think uh, Albany's experiencing some of the same problems that we experience across the country, lack of good uh, health care for people, and particularly people of color, and even women, I mean, they've had to struggle for the best uh, health care because everything's been geared towards white men in this country. And so they're experiencing that. They're experiencing violence. I think everybody's sort of experiencing that. Uh, of course, the pandemic doesn't discriminate, you know, and <laughs> so that that's there. But I think um, across the country, we want to see people who have been oppressed much more involved in the activities of their communities, and having much more of a voice and and being heard by uh, those with power. So we we identify with all of that. Incarceration is a major issue across the country, and uh, I think we've got to uh, change our whole approach to dealing with those kinds of problems. But those are those are national problems, and those are ones that we're dealing with on a local level. But most change comes on a a local level.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. That was all the questions that I had for you off the top of my head. But is there anything that I'm missing that you'd like our listeners to know? What do you hope that uh, people most take away from your book? I hope
1: that people will understand how important it is to understand the history. You know, we we sort of separate black history from American history. And one of the reasons why I wrote the book, I wanted people to see the history that we've experienced and how it's connected to the general history of this uh, country, and that we need to work together to make the kinds of changes that are necessary. You know, so I'm hoping that uh, uh, young people will be involved in all of this. I think it's, you know, we've we've done the the work over the years and now we see a new uh, population emerging that has to take on this horrible task, <laughs> but I want them to be as equipped to uh, to do that as possible. So my focus is, is, is if you need in the book, is on young people. How do we educate young people? How do we get them to understand the real nature of the problem so that they can carry it forward? Because you know, from sixteen nineteen, it's been a long time, and I think we've got to. Bring about that change that we want to get rid of the fear that so many people have and uh, I'm hoping that when they read the book they will also spark some examination I only sort of you know just touch the surface but I'm hoping that other people will take it up and say ah yes we have to understand how to deal with this problem that we had we didn't do back then <laughs> so I'm, I'm excited and, and hopeful that young people will get that message that they have to carry forward with this struggle for social justice and uh, they can do it
0: Dr. Alice Green is the author of We Who Believe in Freedom, Activism and the Struggle for Social Justice, out now on King Jesus Press. She's also the founder and director of the Center for Law and Justice in Albany, New York. You can learn more about the center and its work at its website, cflj.org. Thanks for tuning in to this week's 51%. 51% is a national production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. It's produced by me, Jesse King. Our executive producer is Dr. Alan Shartok, and our theme is Lolita by the Albany-based artist Girl Blue. A big thanks again to Dr. Alice Green for taking the time to speak with me this week. To learn more about our guests or just the show in general, check us out at wamcpodcasts.org. Next week, we celebrate the 200th birthday of Harriet Tubman, brush up on our history, and recognize the power of black joy. Hope to see you there. Until then, I'm Jesse King for 51%. I was
2: every single girl. I was nobody else. I was so sure of myself. So I was 15 and a half. He was a hollow laugh. And I lost my cool somewhere along the way. At night, the hallway I had to learn how to look away I lost my cool